You don't need a study to tell you that aging and fatigue go hand in hand. Nevertheless, my friends at Nutritional Therapeutics, makers of NT Factor, point to 16 studies, all peer-reviewed and published in medical journals, showing that NT Factor can reduce fatigue, while at the same time, age-related changes in the cells are reversed. For 30 years, the makers of NT Factor have worked to improve our health spans by focusing on the mitochondria, the energy powerhouses of our cells. Their science shows that NT Factor, which I don't go a day without and recommend to my patients, improves our energy and prevents the deterioration that accompanies aging. It promises that our day-to-day lives will be improved, and they keep proving it in studies that include placebo-controlled trials, both in the academic institutions and in medical practices like mine. You can find NT Factor at your favorite health food store or online retailer, or to order direct, go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Don't let tiredness and fatigue rob your senior years. Invest regularly in the anti-aging benefit of NT Factor at ntfactor.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today we're going to talk about a very, very important aspect of nutrition. You know, so often we hear that sugar is harmful for you, but when it comes to ditching sugar, getting rid of it from your diet, well, there are a few practical suggestions on how to go about it. Today we're going to talk to an expert. Uh, She is a research neuroscientist, author, and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction, Dr. Nicole Avina. She received a PhD in neuroscience and psychology from Princeton University, which, by the way, that's really the the intersection uh, that we need to look at. Uh, Yes, it is to some extent psychological, but it's also physiological. We have to look at the actual structure of the brain and how the nervous system links to hormonal systems in the body. And uh, uh, Dr. Vina did her postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology at the Rockefeller University. So, uh, Dr. Vina, can I download your brain, please? Because uh, I just took a <laughs> some passing courses in molecular biology. It was a requirement uh, in med school. But, uh, you know, getting a PhD, okay, that's another story entirely. So, uh, so she's written a great book. It's called Sugarless, uh, The Seven-Step plan and uh i'm sorry it it is it's called uh the sugar wait it it is i'm I'm looking at something that says about something about dr johnson but that's not you um yours is 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 sugarless the book is called sugarless and what's the subtitle of the book please it's a the seven step plan to uncover hidden sugars curb your cravings and conquer your addiction okay great so uh, give us an, an idea of the scope of the problem. How pervasive is the problem? And, and why should we be concerned about uh, sugar in our diets? You know, it's something that uh, has been a part of our heritage as, as long as uh, Paleolithic man uh, scaled cliffs and uh, endured bee stings in order to raid a beehive. I mean, there's a powerful drive for sugar, isn't there? It's inbuilt. It's true. It's true. We have this innate biological desire for things that are sweet because traditionally 
in the history of mankind, things that were sweet were good for us. So, you know, our ancestors who were braving the bees to get that honey, you know, it has antifungal, antimicrobial properties, in addition to, you know, tasting sweet. But what's happened, you know, especially over the past 50 years or so, is we've seen a complete shift in our food environment. And now the majority of the foods that we eat are highly processed foods that are basically engineered in food laboratories. And they contain a lot of different ingredients that we're now learning are perhaps not good for our health and excess. And sugar is one of them. And when we look at all of the food products that are out there, I mean, you know, 80% of the processed foods in the grocery store are going to contain added sugar. And we know it's bad for our health in many different ways, not just about physical health in terms of, you know, gaining too much weight or contributing to diabetes, but also mental health. And we're finding that, you know, more and more of the changes in our brain that happen later in life are actually being linked back to, you know, some of the things that sugar can do in our bodies when we're younger. Well, talk to us a little bit about uh, the history of sugar consumption in the world, because uh, I've done a little bit of a survey of that. And it turns out that, you know, many civilizations pride, prized a sugar, uh, but it wasn't until uh, the modern industrial era uh, and the advent of uh, sugar cultivation, first with sugar cane, then with sugar beets, and finally with the most ubiquitous form of sugar that we now find in the human diet, which is high fructose corn syrup, that we've seen a tremendous uptick in our consumption of calories from sugar. So can you can you speak to what these different developments have, have meant? Yeah, it's really an interesting history when you look at sugar. So, you know, back in like the Victorian era, for example, sugar was something that was, you know, seen as a gift that you would maybe have a sweet treat around the holidays, you know, a few times a year. It was something that people really relished in when they were to get access to it because there wasn't a lot of it, right? And again, you know, we have this sort of biological drive to think if it's sweet, it's good for us. And so when you only have even refined sugar a couple times a year, yeah, it's probably not necessarily bad for you. But what we've seen happen is that with the industrialization of our food supply, with the ways in which we've been able to develop technologies to create these different ingredients and to mass produce the amount of sugar that we have access to, we've seen that it has essentially infiltrated our food supply. And there's a few reasons behind that. One is it's cheap. Over time, we've been able to make sugar a lot more affordable. It's been able to be a, a commodity that's come down in price. And like you mentioned, with high fructose corn syrup, essentially, especially we can, you know, use corn to develop this particular sugar. And so we've been able to create this ingredient that we can mass produce and put into lots of different things for relatively little money compared to what it used to be. And, you know, with that, people like the food better, right? If it tastes sweet, people like it. And so we've had this sort of slow walk into our diet being sweeter and sweeter and sweeter over time. And now we're at the point where I think we're at the point of no return, to be quite honest, in the sense that now we have a complete saturation of our diet with added sugars. And 
Unfortunately, on top of that, we're seeing that what was once positioned to be the solution, which was artificial sweeteners or these, you know, alternative sweeteners. Now we're seeing not only our food companies adding sugar, but they're also adding all of these other sweeteners to the same products as well. So the sweetness just continues to rise as time goes on. Is there something particularly pernicious about high fructose corn syrup? Because some allege that good old fashioned sucrose, which is table sugar, a disaccharide is in some ways is bad because it's caloric and it does challenge the metabolism of the body to handle it, you know, insulin and so on. But there's something particularly bad about high fructose corn syrup. Well, I wouldn't say that either of them are particularly good, for sure. Um, The big difference between the two, we've published research studies looking at this, is like you said, sucrose, which is, you know, the typical table sugar, is a disaccharide. It is a combination of two sugars, one being fructose, that is bound with a a molecule. It's molecularly bound 50-50. Now, high fructose corn syrup is different in the sense that most formulations, at least, of high fructose corn syrup claim that it's 55% fructose compared to the 50% fructose that you would find in sucrose. It's also unbound, meaning that there isn't that bond holding the sugar molecules together. But what's happened is that studies have shown that many formulations are not 55% fructose. In fact, they're much, much greater. And you mentioned Dr. Johnson a few minutes ago. Um, he provided one of the, the endorsements for my book, but he's done quite a lot of work and done some really cool studies looking exactly at that question about, you know, how much fructose is actually in this high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, there's different formulations of high fructose corn syrup. Some of them have a higher fructose content that's meant for baking purposes or certain types of culinary reasons. But the traditional stuff that we would find in our beverages or everyday food products isn't always 55%. Now, the question is, so who cares, right? Well, the thing is, fructose, when we consume it in excess, and I'm not talking about eating too many strawberries or apples. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about it's, when it's, it's highly concentrated. Fruit sugar. It's a natural constituent of fruit. So, you know, perhaps moderation in fruit consumption, that might be okay, uh, unless one is uh, striving to be on an ultra-low-carb diet. But you really amp it up when you uh, artificially make this concoction, this high fructose corn syrup, right? Absolutely. You would have to sit there for days and days and days eating apples to get the amount of fructose out of apples that you're going to be getting out of some of these formulations of high fructose corn syrup. The things that that is dangerous about this is that when you consume fructose in excess, it can cause fat to bind to our liver. And so you may have heard of, you know, fatty liver disease, right? This is something that 30 years ago, you'd only see in people who were really alcoholics. Whereas now we actually had to create a new category of the condition known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to explain why so many kids are getting it. Because, you know, you got 11, 12 year old kids walking around with fatty livers. It's not because they're drinking alcohol. It's because they're consuming excess amounts of sugars and the fructose is causing the fat to bind to their liver, which is definitely not good to be happening at such a young age. Indeed. So uh, what are some of the consequences that we see in epidemiology 
uh, you know, and looking at various uh, disease states that might be attributable to our infatuation with sugar? Well, when I first started doing research on this topic, I was interested in the obesity crisis. And, you know, when I first started this work, I was a grad student back at Princeton and it was the year 2001. And back then we were really just starting to in the media and in public health talk a lot about this rise in obesity rates that was happening. And it was something that at the time people were still of the mindset that, well, if you're overweight or obese, it's your fault. It's because you don't have the willpower and the self-control and the discipline to control yourself around food. And, you know, I started thinking about this and I thought, well, you know, a lot goes into making decisions about your health. But one of the things that's really curious about this particular issue is that so many people are getting overweight or obese, and there's tons of information out there to help them. There's tons of diet programs, there's tons of plans, recipes, all that stuff is available, but people find it really hard to stick to the plan, even when it's laid out very clearly for them. And so we started to think, well, maybe it's not the people, maybe it's the food. Maybe there's something about the types of foods that people are eating and all the added sugar that's being added to these processed foods that could be getting people hooked on them in ways like people can get addicted to drugs or alcohol. And so we started looking at this from the standpoint of trying to understand obesity and the development of being overweight. And that's certainly one condition that, you know, sugar seems to play a role in, but there's a lot of others and lots of research has come out since then pointing to the fact that, you know, sugar can contribute to cardiovascular disease. I mean, we were really told mostly through the 1990s to avoid fat if we wanted to avoid cardiovascular disease and to avoid salt if we wanted to avoid cardiovascular disease. But it turns out sugar is just as bad, if not worse, at promoting cardiovascular disease. Also, there's been a lot of work recently that I find really interesting looking at the role of excess sugar intake throughout the lifespan and the development of Alzheimer's disease and dementia later in life. And although the mechanisms aren't quite exactly worked out yet, it does seem to be involving insulin signaling in the brain and how if you have a diet that's very rich in sugars for the better part of your life, it can alter your brain's insulin signaling and receptor in a way that may be promoting dementia later on. So there are quite a few conditions that certainly are affected by sugar. And I think as time goes on and more and more people in different disciplines are studying this, we're going to learn about a whole lot more that are affected by it in addition to the ones I just described. So your initial orientation was in uh, neuroscience and psychology, not so much uh, endocrinology or the study of uh, obesity, but it's you are a student of the brain and so your research has and the research of others your colleagues has demonstrated that uh excess sugar consumption can in effect rewire the brain uh and kind of be a self-perpetuating vicious cycle it's true and we've done quite a few studies looking at the brain one of our initial studies actually was to really just ask this very basic question of what does sugar do to the dopamine reward system? And it was an important question because the hallmark of drugs of abuse is that every time you take a hit of a drug of abuse, whether it's nicotine, morphine, heroin, you name it, 
it releases dopamine in the reward-related regions of the brain. That's why people, you know, feel that high and, and feel the pleasure that they get when they use a drug for that first time. And food doesn't do that. Normally, when you eat food, it doesn't produce an increase in dopamine. It does a lot of other things in the brain and different parts of the brain, but it doesn't typically result in this dopamine spike. And so the question we really had was, okay, well, what's going to happen with sugar? If you consume a large amount of sugar, if you binge on sugar, which let's face it, you eat a granola bar, you're binging on sugar because there's so much sugar in that granola bar in proportion to, you know, the it, rest it of the ingredients. It's sort of a health halo because it's whole grains, natural, blah, blah, blah. But it's a big hit of sugar. It's sweetened. Exactly. And that's, you know, one of the things about binging, you know, we typically think, oh, if you're binging on something, you need to have this large volume of it. Well, yeah, you can have a large volume of sugar in a very small vessel in the form of a, a granola bar or a candy bar. So when we did these experiments, we found that indeed, sugar was able to release dopamine just like a drug would. And it wasn't just dopamine. We looked at other neurochemicals. We looked at the receptors for other neurochemicals, including dopamine, the brain, endogenous opioids. And we were seeing remarkable similarities in terms of what was happening in response to sugar and what happens in response to drugs. And so this was a real, I think, turning point for the work we were doing because it, for me, you know, we, we have as, you know, neuroscientists, we have, you know, our brain studies, but as psychologists, we also have these behavioral studies that we do in tandem. And when we were starting to really see these neurochemical studies validate these behaviors that we were seeing, it really started to set off some bells and whistles for me that we were maybe onto something and that this was worth pursuing. And that's, you know, really why even now to this day, we're still doing experiments in this area because there's just so many questions that we've been able to answer, but there's also a lot of questions that, you know, we've been able to ask as a result. Well, you know, since dopamine is really the neurotransmitter of, of reinforcement, building habits and ultimately uh, addictions, uh, is that kind of uh, portend a kind of a gloomy picture for people who uh, early on have a lot of sugar exposure. You know, sometimes I think that uh, the way to address uh, our, our sugar uh, epidemic uh, is to start early with kids. But once uh, kids have been wired to crave sugar, uh, either in utero, you know, even preconceptually or even, uh, you know, uh, prenatally uh, or uh, in the early years of life, uh, is is that a point of no return? Uh, because the brain literally has been rewired to accept this as part of a, uh, a program of, of reinforcement. That's a really great question. And we wondered this ourselves empirically. And so when we were doing some of our initial studies looking at how sugar affects the brain in adults, we wondered, well, what would happen during pregnancy? And so at the time we were doing our studies in our little lab rats and we were giving them either sugar sucrose or we were giving them high fructose corn syrup during pregnancy and then watching the effects that would happen with the offspring in terms of their food preferences their sensitivity to drugs and alcohol and different things like that and we found some really interesting things in rats that never have tasted sugar 
they were just exposed to it in utero. We were able to see alterations in their preference for sugar. We're able to see elevated triglyceride levels. They're not even eating sugar or anything abnormal. It's just that something's happening in utero to change the way in which their body is metabolizing or processing triglycerides. And we were also able to see that they were more likely to become overweight, even when eating a normal calorie diet. Mm. They also were more sensitive to drugs and alcohol. So if they had a choice to drink alcohol or to, you know, be administered a drug of abuse, they would show a heightened responsivity to it if they'd just been exposed mm. to sugar in the womb. So the so again, is that it sort of it sort of kindles the addictive center in the brain, even in uh, prenatal development, you know, so that the, the significant morphological and functional changes in the brain uh, can occur as early as in utero and certainly uh, in infancy and early childhood. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have been able to see this in the research lab. There's been other laboratories throughout the U.S. that have published studies, you know, showing changes in, you know, DNA methylation for dopamine, for example, in these reward-related regions, just in response to the maternal diet. So to answer your question about, you know, is it too late? (laughs) Because again, it does paint somewhat of a bleak picture in the sense that, you know, if you're, you can't control what your mom ate when she was pregnant with you and you really can't control what you were fed up until, you know, you pretty much left your house when you're 18. But it does mean that we have created a more difficult situation in the sense that many, many people are entering adulthood or being born at least primed to be dependent on sugar. And then when sugar is all over our food environment and it's being socially accepted and, you know, really just no restrictions on it in terms of how we view it, then that really does set people up for problems in terms of controlling their intake. Now you can, I mean, it's certainly possible um, to change. Obviously our brains are malleable. They're always changing, but I think that we're finding that so many people are struggling and we're seeing so many cases, especially of young people developing type two diabetes at an early age, developing fatty liver disease, getting metabolic syndrome because they were born genetically primed and now into an environment that's promoting this type of intake. And, and we often talk about a, a toxic food environment because when you want to abstain from alcohol, you know, you simply don't go into a bar. Uh, if you want to abstain from uh, drug use, well, maybe you don't hang around on the street corner where the dealer is going to be offering free samples. Uh, but you got to eat. You got to go into a supermarket. The uh, areas where junk food are sold are not segregated from uh, the fresh fruits and vegetables uh, and uh, natural meats and proteins. Uh, the, these temptations are ubiquitous. So should we take a, a kind of an addiction model with this? Because, you know, we, we know that the, the Sacklers went into disrepute when they uh, started to purvey a drug called OxyContin. And they said, well, you know, it's great for pain, but don't worry about it. It's not addictive. But uh, at some level, you know, maybe we should use this addiction model uh, and this uh, uh, issue of uh, causing public harm uh, to take to the to the food manufacturers and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you are uh, causing mayhem and you're actually offering a disease causing product just like the tobacco industry did. Right. And I, I think the thing that we think about moving forward with 
sugar is that, you know, sugar, I believe, truly is addictive. I think there's a significant amount of research and it's not just mine. There's tons of other researchers who've been looking at this and have published papers that support our findings. If we have something that's addictive, but we also have something that's toxic, that is a public health concern. I mean, okay, so caffeine, for example. It, it kind of really you know, closes the circle on an argument for either regulation or even, you know, tobacco style litigation, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's where, you know, with tobacco, if it was addictive and it's toxic, then it's a problem, right? And, you know, something like caffeine, for example, yeah, I know plenty of people, including myself, who are would be considered addicted to coffee. I like it ha- every day. I have it a couple times a day, but it's not toxic in the sense that, you know, it's causing me or others harm. With sugar, we now know that not only is it addictive, but it's also toxic in the sense that it's linked to all of these health conditions. It's producing fatty liver disease in some people. And we know that it's physically harming our bodies and our brains. And so I think that's where, you know, moving forward, we will be having to make the arguments because if it is something that people, you know, the food industry likes to say, oh, well, just have it in moderation. And, you know, right. we never told you to eat the whole box right. of cookies. They, but- they also say that it, it, it is uh, accompanied by an active lifestyle. You can mitigate the harm from the sugar. So basically, you know, drink a Coke, you know, and do a spin class, you know, and you'll you'll obviate the harm of the of the of the substance. Right. That's a lot of spin classes for most people, right? Um, <laughs> it's a lot of spin is from the uh, from the food industry, too. It is. It really is. But it's true. I think that that has sort of been the argument that, you know, oh, if you're going to enjoy these foods, enjoy them in moderation right. or like you said, enjoy them, you know, with a healthy exercise routine. But, you know, you could not exercise your way out of the standard American diet if you tried to. I mean, there is no way. There's not enough time in the gym, you know, not enough ways in which you could burn those calories. I mean, it took, I ran five miles today and I burned 500 calories and I could eat, you know, a sandwich that has 500 calories probably in three minutes. And it took me 45 minutes to run those five miles. So just the time exchange alone, I mean, the amount of calories that we can consume happens much more quickly than the amount of cal- how long it takes us to burn it off. So that's where we are now. I think moving forward, it's really going to be about the fact that, you know, if these things are addictive and they're containing ingredients that are addictive, how can you tell people to just have only a little bit? And how can we continue to sell them in the ways that we have and the amounts that we have? Okay, so much for bad news. Uh, your book, uh, entitled Sugarless, uh, outlines a seven-step plan for addressing uh, probably the most pervasive problem in America, which is sugar addiction. I, I virtually can't, you know, perhaps there are some outliers, but I can't think of anyone who's not uh, at one point or another prey to this this uh, this, this 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 ravaging. Uh, epidemic. So when we return, we're going to talk a little bit about 
a seven-step plan, some practical measures that people can undertake to wean themselves off of sugar. Uh, by the way, your book was released uh, in timely fashion in December. Uh, that's when, you know, people start making resolutions. It's a little late in the year in the cycle because pe- people probably abandoned many of their resolutions. Uh, but, hey, it's, uh, it's springtime. Uh, it's Lent. Uh, it's a time of renewal. And so uh, it, uh, it's a good topic to discuss at this point. Uh, let's uh, pause, and when we return, we'll talk about some practical measures that people can undertake uh, to wean themselves off the white stuff. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest uh, is Dr. Uh, Avina. Uh, she is a, Dr. Nicole Avina is a research neuroscientist, author, and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction. We'll be right back with more of today's Intelligent Medicine podcast. <laughs> 